let's ask the Lord's blessing on all these things. <clears throat> oh Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Um, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the church. And we pray now in Jesus' name that you would take uh, your word tonight, bless it to your church, your people. I pray you would um, do what no, uh, uh, no PowerPoint presentation could ever do. And by your power, you would do what no man can do. No education, no eloquence, no experience can do. But what we pray for is not by might or power, but by your spirit. So I pray this would be edifying to your people. And I pray, too, for my daughter, Laurelyn. I pray, Lord, that uh, uh, for the safe and timely arrival of a little Olivia. Uh, but, uh, Lord, if it's your will she come tonight, then pray for that. But we do uh, bring her before you and ask you to give them safe travel down to Louisville right now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, the theme of this conference is something that probably has very little application, actually, to most of you. Uh, the theme is responding biblically to the increased pace and complexity of life. So I'm sure that applies to hardly anyone. But just in case it does, may the Lord use this and, and, uh, to help you. Uh, you've had a book emphasized to you called Simplify Your Spiritual Life. And there are still, I saw a few copies there. Some of this is, is, a lot of this actually is taken from some of the very short chapters in that book. There are 90 chapters in that book, about two pages each. And if you try to do everything in that book, it will complicate your spiritual life. Uh, that's intended to be a garden for you to wander in and find things that perhaps this will help, this will help, but 90 different uh, ideas there. And notice the book is not about simplifying your life. Uh, I would be a poor candidate for writing something like that, but it is about simplifying your spiritual life. People for whom their spiritual life becomes just, in many ways, another thing in an already over-busy, over-committed life. Reading the Bible is just one more thing to do. Uh, prayer threatens to become drudgery. Uh, the church tends to be uh, just a burden on your life as much as a blessing. So how do we order our spiritual lives in ways that, that can simplify without compromising the benefits? The longer you go through life, the more you accumulate responsibilities like barnacles, right? And there comes a time in which some of those barnacles have to be removed. But I believe it is in the um, practice of the spiritual disciplines, actually, that in the practice of them, we are better, more clearly see God's priorities for our lives and are able to pare away some of the things that, that need to be pared away, like the Lord said in John 15 about uh, he pairs, uh, he uh, uh, trims the vine, what's the word I'm looking for? Prunes the vine, that it might be more fruitful. And in all of our lives, there comes a time of pruning so that we would be more fruitful. Under that general heading, there are a lot of things I could talk about. Really, we only have about three or four different themes in this short conference. Uh, so again, I could approach it for many ways. The first one, well, actually both tonight and tomorrow may surprise you, but tonight I want you to look at the 10 Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 
two sessions tonight, and the first is really more biblical explanation, and the second is more of the application. Getting very specific in that second one tonight. In the third of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And many are surprised at how this is possibly uh, the least understood of all ten and the one that Christians break perhaps more than any other about taking the Lord's name uh, in vain. Um, we tend to think of phrases that perhaps unbelievers use a lot taking the Lord's name in vain and that is so but the Hebrew here means to take the Lord's name emptily or without purpose so if you take the and as believers we take the Lord's name on our lips far more often so if you're singing holy 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 Lord God Almighty and you're thinking about I wish someone would turn the air conditioner on or you're wondering what you're going to do after you leave you just broke the third commandment you took the Lord's name on your lips but you weren't thinking of him that's taking the Lord's name emptily or without purpose. And since as Christians we take the Lord's name, I said, far more often than unbelievers do, uh, many of the times we take his name on our lips, he is not in our mind or in our heart. And so it's very likely Christians break the third commandment far more often than unbelievers do. If you're surprised by that, you may be surprised to learn that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is the most controversial of the ten. Probably no other of the Ten Commandments has caused more controversy, not only uh, among Christians, but between Christians and non-Christians, than the commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For example, does God consider it a sin for businesses, any business, to stay open on Sunday? Is it a sin to work on Sunday, to travel on Sunday? Is it sinful for you to eat out on Sunday? To watch a ball game on TV on Sunday? Is it wrong to mow your yard, the other yard work on Sunday? Does God consider it sinful for the church to have six or eight hours worth of meetings on a Sunday? And all of these are based upon the idea that the Sabbath day and Sunday are the same day. Are they the same? Well, Saturday, as you know, was the Sabbath day for the people to whom this chapter was first addressed. Should Saturday be our day of worship? That's still what the Jews believe. That's what the Seventh-day Adventists believe. That's what the Seventh-day Baptists believe. A group you may not have heard of before. They're mostly in western New York State. I've only met one before. But they are people who believe exactly the same as you and I in all matters except what day is the day of worship because they believe that is what the Bible teaches. But if you believe Sunday is now to be the day of worship, should we consider it the Christian Sabbath, which many of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention would have, and so many of the heroes that we have, and quoted from this pulpit, that, that they would have believed? Should we consider Sunday then the Christian Sabbath, or is it not really a Sabbath at all in the sense meant by the fourth commandment? So let's look more closely of what God has said in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Um, and we'll read all of these. It's also, may surprise you, it is the longest by far of all of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days, not five, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So at the beginning of verse 10, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. God made the last day of the week, our Saturday, the Sabbath day. They were to do no work on that day, not any of the servants, the animals, not even foreign travelers staying with them. They were to work six and no fewer than six and then do no work at all on the seventh day. And so at this point, it is what I think most people only think of it as it is a law to be kept. It is a commandment. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It is a law to be kept. And the whole hinge on which this turns, I'm going to say in a moment, is the other way it needs to be thought of, and we, we rarely do. But right now, it's a law to be kept. Now, in giving the Sabbath to the Israelis, God was commanding them to follow his pattern. He worked six days in creation, then rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, but because he was finished. He did the work of creation and rested, saying, in effect, it is finished. And so the Sabbath is a reminder of the finished work of God and a day for them, and here's a phrase I want you to remember, to rest from their work and seek their God. And if I had the slide up there, you would see that at the top of every slide. That's really the title of this, this first hour, rest from your work and seek your God. That's the way the Jews would have understood the fourth commandment. Don't do any work, seek God on that day. Rest from your work seek your God. But we're going to see there's a double meaning in this. There's no evidence of a Sabbath by anyone before God instituted it among the Jews in the book of Exodus. But when he established his law and his covenant with Israel, he instructed them to begin observing a weekly Sabbath of resting from their work, seeking their God. But, here's a turning point. It was not only a law to be kept it was also a sign of the covenant itself. That's huge. Not just a law to be kept, but unlike the other nine commandments, it was a sign of the old covenant itself. We're told this in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It, the Sabbath, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. The Lord says the same in Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. See, so with me, it was one of the Ten Commandments, a law to be kept. But now we read where it was also a sign of the covenant God had with the Jews. There were others. One was a sign, the sign of circumcision, a sign in the bodies of the men that they always carried with them for the rest of their life, that it was a, a physical reminder, perpetual reminder, 
that they were in covenant with God. They were a unique people. But the Sabbath was one that everyone could participate in. It was a sign that they had a relationship with God no other nation did. The nations around them worked seven days a week. They did not have something called a Sabbath. And they did not have a day given by God as a day to rest from their work and on that day seek their God. Now it's from elsewhere in the Old Testament that more details were unfolded about life on the Sabbath. Most of them were negative ones. For example, they were told, don't kindle a fire. Don't even gather sticks for a fire. We're going to see why that's a very important commandment in a little bit. They were not, according to one passage, Isaiah 58, they were not to seek their own ways or their own pleasures or speak their own word. On the other hand, they were to gather with others <coughs> to worship God, and they were to find, we're told there, find the Sabbath a delight. If they were not delighted in the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, they were in sin. And how do you become delighted on the Sabbath day? You find your delight in God. So the Sabbath wasn't just, okay, do what I say, keep these rules, keep these laws, stay in line. No, the commandment was also that they were to be delighted on the Sabbath day. And if they weren't, they were in sin, no matter how many of the other requirements of the Sabbath they kept. So by resting from their work and seeking their God each Saturday, according to the fourth commandment, they would keep the Sabbath day holy. But we're not here for a history lesson. We are not under the old covenant. We are the new covenant people of God as believers in Christ, and we're concerned primarily with the new covenant and its symbols, which are <laughs> baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the signs of the new covenant, right? When you profess faith in Christ and that you are now in covenant with God through Jesus, you submit to the initiatory symbol that you're in covenant. And what is that? Baptism, you do that one time. It's the outward profession that says, I am in covenant with God through Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And once having done that, then you are qualified and should uh, participate in the ongoing sign of the covenant, which is? the Lord's Supper. These are the signs of the new covenant. So those are the things that we're primarily interested in. That being so, now here's a second main heading here, if you're looking at your notes there. What relevance then does the fourth commandment have to Christians? If, if the Sabbath was a sign of the old covenant, what relevance does a sign of the old covenant have to new covenant believers? That's our question here at the beginning. Well, to understand how it relates to us, we need to understand two things. First one, the Old Covenant Sabbath practices are not binding on New Covenant believers. What's our relationship to the Sabbath? Number one, the Old Covenant Sabbath practices are not binding on New Covenant believers. Let me give you some reasons why. First of all, did you know that the fourth commandment is not specifically repeated in the New Testament? 
Most of the others, nearly all of the other nine, some would say all nine of them, are repeated in the New Testament. For example, if you look at Matthew 5.21, Jesus says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Exact quotation from Exodus 20. Quotes the sixth commandment. Same is true in Ephesians 6.2, which quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise. So there's two of the Ten Commandments quoted explicitly. It can be argued that nine of the ten are quoted in the New Testament. And there are some intramural debates over how many, but what is clear is that, remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy is not repeated in the New Testament. So that's very interesting. Second, we never read in the New Testament of post-Pentecost Christians observing the Sabbath. After Pentecost, we never read of believers in Christ observing the Sabbath. Third, and I think... Um, um, well, third, you, you, never, you find the word Sabbath mentioned only in about nine different episodes in the New Testament, which is a lot. They're in the Gospels there with Jesus, and it was a big issue. But in those nine episodes, not once is it spoken of as a day observed by Christians. It's always in conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees. And in the couple of times which we'll see in, uh, in the epistles, not once is it mentioned as something that Christians were doing then or should do now. Fourth, and I think very importantly, we never read of the apostles teaching Gentiles to observe the Sabbath. We never read of the apostles teaching Gentiles to observe the Sabbath. Now, I think that's very telling. If you were the Apostle Paul and you come into a Greek city like Corinth or some other Greek city and you preach the gospel, you plant the church there and you're not dealing with Jews who grew up with the Torah who grew up with the books of Moses, who in their household practiced the Passover and were taught the Ten Commandments and so forth. You're talking about people who never even heard of the Ten Commandments, literally. They literally never heard of the Ten Commandments. They were Greeks. And they come to Christ. Don't you think somewhere we would read of Paul either preaching to them in the book of Acts or in one of his letters writing to them and saying, now you guys have never heard about the Sabbath before, like I did growing up. But I need to tell you about this because it's huge. In fact, it's one of the 10 biggest commandments. But he never does. You would expect that, wouldn't you? If it was essential, if it was as important as the other nine commandments are, and they never had any contact with it before, you would expect somewhere, either in writing or in preaching, some indication that they need to know this, right? But we never read of the apostles teaching Gentiles about the Sabbath. If you'll look with me now, another reason, Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11 Galatians 4, 9 through 11, Paul rebukes the Christians in the area of Galatia. That wasn't a city, that was, it was a region. 
for returning to the Jewish observance of special days like the Sabbath. He writes, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things <clears throat> to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days. That would have included the Sabbath day. You, include, you, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. But he's even more specific in Colossians 2, 16 to 17. The Christians in Colossae were being told that they had to observe Jewish dietary laws and Jewish days of worship if they were going to be really spiritual. But Paul was inspired by God to declare, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Things like the Sabbath day, you following him there? He talks about all these things. Like the Sabbath day, he says, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath, he said, is a shadow, but the substance that casts the shadow is Christ. That's what you need to focus on, he says. That's the real thing. That's the substance. That's what you need to be concerned about is Christ, not a shadow of Christ. So, and we'll come back to that passage in a moment. So the Sabbath was a sign to the Jews of their covenant with God. The sign, it's not a sign of the new covenant. So instead of Saturday, we find the first Christians worshiping on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And they did so in commemoration of what? The resurrection of Jesus. And almost every significant event from the resurrection of Jesus up to and, and including the Holy Spirit's coming in great power at Pentecost happened on the first day of the week as did the revelation of the ascended Jesus Christ to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And I'll give you ten of those things here in just a moment. So, in fact, by the time the Apostle John wrote, he tells us in Revelation 1.10 that Sunday had become known among Christians as the Lord's Day. That's a New Testament term, biblical term, the Lord's Day. It wasn't the Sabbath, that was Saturday. We never see them referring to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. They called it something else, the Lord's Day. It was a new day. And it means something. We're going to come to that in the next session. Sunday is different. Sunday is special. It is the Lord's Day. But it's not the Sabbath. It's different than the Sabbath. So the first thing to grasp in order to understand what is the relevance of the Old Covenant Sabbath, the fourth commandment, the sign of the Old Covenant, what relevance does that have to New Covenant Christ people, to Christians, is that the Old Covenant Sabbath practices are not binding on New Covenant believers. The second thing to understand is this. The Old Covenant Sabbath is fulfilled in the finished New Covenant work of Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant Sabbath is fulfilled in the finished New covenant work of Jesus Christ. This is revealed in the typology or the symbolism of the Sabbath. There are many things in the Old Testament that were types or symbols foreshadowing 
something to come. They had meanings not only in and of themselves, they were types or symbols of things that were to come. There were people like that. So give me some. Who are some people in the Old Testament that foreshadowed Christ? Well, John the Baptist is really kind of a hinge or New Testament figure. Joshua, which Yeshua, which would have been Jesus' Hebrew name, it leads the people into the promised land like Jesus. Moses, the great lawgiver. Jesus, you know, was another great lawgiver and leader of his people. Adam, Jesus is the last Adam, the Bible tells us. New representative of his people. Job. Uh, in that, you know, the willing to suffer uh, uh, unjustly uh, for the sake of righteousness and to be attacked by Satan, as Jesus was uniquely. Someone else? Joseph, the one who uh, uh, gave his life for his brothers uh, unjustly. You know, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so Jesus, in the same way, rescued uh, Going into the far country, he rescued his brothers who would have perished otherwise. Well, I mean, as you can see, Melchizedek, right? Uh, Jesus is considered a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us. So basically, just about every uh, good figure in the Old Testament foreshadowed something about Jesus. And in many cases, because they were a prophet, because they were a priest, because they were a king, and only one of only one person was allowed to have all of those titles applied to himself and against that, that's Jesus. So, first of all, people, virtually every, well, every good major figure in the Old Testament foreshadowed something about Jesus. There were objects that foreshadowed things about the new covenant, such as, I'm sorry? The tabernacle, God's dwelling place. Well, we are now the temple. We are the place of God's dwelling the Holy of Holies, where, you know, the innermost place where God dwells as he dwells within each of us. I'm sorry? I still couldn't hear you. Passover lamb. Passover lamb. I'm sorry. I just, the acoustics are such I couldn't hear. A Passover lamb. Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb, right? All the way through Revelation, he's called the lamb. Someone else. All right, all the sacrifices foreshadowed something in Jesus, right? How about the bronze serpent on the pole? Still the sign of the medical profession. You look to the, you know, the, 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 the evil, if you will, the, the serpent on the pole as Jesus took sin to himself. You look to him, lift it up like that, you will be healed. So there are so many objects the, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwells, foreshadows Jesus dwelling in, in Christ. All right, there were events in the Old Testament that foreshadowed something to come, such as the Passover. Very clearly, you know, blood has to be on the God's wrath is coming, but the blood has to be of the Passover lamb on you in your house or you will be destroyed. What else? The Exodus itself was is foreshadowing the process of coming out of the land of destruction and sin into a new land, a new world. Someone else? Well, I mean, we could, we could go on and on, right? There, you just can hardly think of, of anything in the Old Testament, whether it's a person, whether it's an activity, whether it is an object that doesn't foreshadow something usually about Jesus. 
Well, guess what else foreshadows something about Jesus? The Sabbath. Is it any surprise then that the Sabbath would foreshadow something about Jesus? Something that would come in a deeper way in the New Testament. So we're back to Colossians 2, 16 and 17 again here. To get this idea of foreshadowing seen in the Sabbath. Therefore, Colossians 2.16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things like Sabbath days which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow. It came first. The substance that cast the shadow was Christ. Normally we think of our shadow as, as it is for me right now, behind us. But according to the lighting, it can be in front of us and when that happens we call it what? Foreshadow. It's before you, right? That's what the Sabbath was. The Sabbath came first but it was a shadow. So imagine that I was out that door and you were waiting on me as you were Instead of coming in that door, I came in this door. And let's say bright lights were back there. Maybe even somehow the sun was, was coming in through there. And you're waiting, you're looking, where is he, where is he? And oh, he should be here any second. And you see a shadow come through the door because of the bright lights behind me. And you say, well, I wonder if that means it's him. Is, is that him? Is that the pastor? Is it, well, it, it does look like a male form there. It doesn't, I don't see a dress. It could be, it could be. It's a male form, I think. It's not a dog. It's not a cat. We can tell it looks human. It, you know, it might be, it could be. And I walk in and when you see it's me, what do you forget? The shadow. The shadow is meaningless once I come in, Right? The shadow is pointing towards something more important. The substance that casts the shadow is what matters. In this case, there was foreshadowing that my shadow came in first, but once I come in, you totally forget the shadow. That's what we're told here in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that the Sabbath day was a shadow of things to come. The shadow came first, but the substance that cast the shadow is Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Now there's one more piece to this puzzle, and it's Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. Well, that barbecue is calling for water, isn't it? <clears throat> I had a lot of that sauce, and that command was speaking. It's going to require me to do this a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry? Okay. We're going to notice the verb tenses here. Let's look at verse 9 first. So there remains, what's the verb tense there? Present tense, right now. Not past tense, not future. There remains, still is, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, in some sense, there still is a Sabbath. There's a still a Sabbath rest. How, how do we enter it? How do we experience it? Verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's a little hard to follow because of the pronouns. Watch me as I read this, and I'm going to use hand motions to clarify who's being referred to here. When I point this way, his means God. When I point to myself, him or his means the believer. Okay? 
So, where do we start? There still is a Sabbath rest. How do we keep it? How do we enter the Sabbath? For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So it says we keep the Sabbath, we enter the Sabbath when we rest from our works as God did from his. God rested from his works on the seventh day, right? He did the work of creation and then rested, saying, in effect, it is finished. Jesus did the work of new creation. And said what? It is finished. So how do we enter the Sabbath? How do we keep the Sabbath? It says when we rest from our works. Today, how does a person rest from his works? In one sense, the final sense, how does someone today rest from their works 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 how do you rest from your works by grace through faith faith in Jesus Christ and his work when you say I can't do it I can't be good enough I can't do enough good works. I can't keep them perfectly. I've tried to be good enough for God to accept me. I give it up. I can't be good enough. I'm not relying on my works anymore. I'm not relying on my goodness anymore. By faith, I'm relying on his works. That's how you rest from your works and keep the Sabbath. When you are united with Christ by faith, You've heard of believing in Jesus. Literally, it means to believe into Jesus. We talk about being united with Christ. How? By faith. We believe into Christ. When we believe by faith, we are placed into Christ. We're identified with Christ. And you get credit for having lived his life. So is salvation by works? Oh, you bet it is. But not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation, and Jesus did for 33 years, always keeping the law of God, never breaking the law of God, and Jesus earned heaven by his perfect life, right? He was perfectly righteous. He worked for heaven and earned it. And you get credit for that when you believe into Christ and the flip side of believing into Christ is giving up your works. Giving up all hope that you're good enough for God to accept you. When you rest from your works as a means of righteousness. Not that you stop doing good deeds. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2 says. But out of grace and out of gratitude, not as a means of earning salvation. When you give up your good works as a way of impressing God and getting into heaven. That's when you rest from your works. You keep the Sabbath. Or better yet, Christ keeps the Sabbath for you and you get credit for it. 
like he kept all the law for you and you got credit for it, right? He kept all 10 commandments for you, didn't he? He kept the greatest of all commandments. He loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, his neighbor as himself. Jesus kept all the law, including the fourth commandment of the law. And so there's a sense in which we keep the Sabbath when we come to Christ, but better said, he keeps it for us like he keeps all the law for us, and we get credit for all his law keeping, including his Sabbath keeping. And that's, that's why. That's why we read that, that commandment or, or that, that story in Exodus um, where, right, I mean, it's right after the Ten Commandments. The Lord tells him, you know, sends the manna and, and so forth. And he says, uh, on the Sabbath, you are not to do any work. You're not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. You're not to even pick up sticks for a, a fire on the Sabbath. And wouldn't you know it, in the very next chapter, they find this guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And so they arrest him. Now what do we do? Uh, Lord, we got, we, uh, got this stick picker up here, and um, we don't really know what we're supposed to do. I mean, of all the things, you know, the laws you could have put out there, you know, that you didn't put anything out there about that he would later, you, you put a law about picking up sticks? What do you want us to do with him, Lord? What did he say? Stone him. Stone him, Lord? Stone him. For picking up sticks, stone him. Do you know why? Because the Sabbath was the symbol of the finished work of Christ. And you and I can't add a stick to the finished work of Jesus Christ. This was a picture of the Sabbath and God was not going to allow any human fingerprints to be placed on this symbol of the work of Jesus. From day one, no fingerprints on this picture of the finished work of Christ. That's so significant. So many things you see in the Bible, you think, why is that in there? You know, one of the, the obscure laws, you know, if, if an unclean man spits on a clean man, the clean man becomes unclean. Well, that's real helpful. You know? I'll try to avoid spinning people, especially during. Can anybody think of a time when unclean men spat on a clean man? Yeah, on the cross. Does that transform your understanding of that verse that we laugh at when we read it in the Old Testament and then you realize how it's pointing to Christ all along? And that's the way it is with the picking up sticks. That's the way it is with the Sabbath. It points to Jesus. The Sabbath is fulfilled in the finished new covenant work of Jesus Christ. When he said it is finished and you believe into Christ, you keep the Sabbath. Just like you keep all ten of the commandments. Just like you keep all of the law in Christ. 
He keeps it for you. You get credit for it when you are united with him by faith. So, as we look back on the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's why I called it rest from your work and seek your God. The Jews understood it one way. Okay, Literally, don't do any work with your hands on that day and spend the day seeking God. Now, from the New Testament perspective, we understand it. When we read rest from your work, it means give up trying to earn your way to heaven and seek your God in Christ. So, means even more than this. So, so let, let's look at this in the balance of, of this time in, in this session. Um, why then, why should we rest from our work and seek our God? And I'm going to give you three reasons why we should do this. Number one, because of who God is. God who made heaven and earth. A God greater than we can imagine. He says, Asia, and Asia is formed. He says, South America, and it rises up, an entire continent rises out of the sea. A God greater than we can imagine. We should rest from our work and seek our God because of who God is. I'm going to need your help up in the booth now uh, on this one. I want you to imagine, what if God were as big as the world? And you wanted to see all there is of God. And everywhere you looked, it took your breath away. Like some great mountain vista in the Rocky Mountains where it's just this stunning expanse. And it's just overwhelmingly beautiful and immense. But everywhere you looked... It was like that. And God, we're as big as the whole world. How long would it take you to see all there is of God? Well, what if God were as big as Jupiter? Jupiter can hold hundreds of Earths. There they are, side by side. What if God were as big as Jupiter? How long would it take you to see all there is of God? Especially when everything you saw you, you could stare at forever because of its exquisite beauty, a beauty unlike you've ever seen before. Well, let's take it further. What if God were as big as the sun? And you see down in the lower right-hand corner there, there's earth, a little dot. You know, you are here. Uh, and Jupiter is there on the lower left. I mean, the sun can hold hundreds and hundreds of Jupiters. What if God were as big as the sun? How long would it take you to see all there is of God? But you know, our sun is a small star, actually, or a medium-sized star, if you show me the next one there. There's some relative uh, sizes of stars. Uh, you can't read it, but in the lower left-hand corner, that little arrow, it says, our sun, one pixel. It's not even as big enough to make a dot. That's our sun compared to some other celestial bodies, Betelgeuse, Antares, you know, thousands and thousands of times the size of our sun. What if God were as big as those stars? 
And as you walked around looking at God, everywhere you looked, oh, it just took your breath away. You wanted to stare forever. Well, what if, let's go to the next one. What if God were as big as the Milky Way galaxy, which contains billions of stars, each of which, you know, incredible numbers of light years from the next star. <clears throat> there are so many of them that, of course, there are gas clouds in there too, but so many of them, they, they look like a cloud. In one of the iterations of the Star Trek television series, Star Trek Voyager, the plot was the Voyager spacecraft, somehow, I don't remember how it got there, through a wormhole or something, I guess. They were in one quadrant of the galaxy, let's say the lower left quadrant, and their goal was to get home, which is in the lower right-hand quadrant, but even at 10 times the speed of light, 10 times the speed of light, they would all be dead of old age before they got home. So the whole plot was how are we going to get home for supper, <laughs> you know, instead of dying of, of old age. <clears throat> the galaxy is that big. What if God were as big as our galaxy? And as you walked around looking at the beauties and glories of God, stunned at every place you turned and looked. It'd take a while, wouldn't it? How long would it take? Well, you better bring a lunch. A lot of lunches. Well, um, back in the, in the late 90s, um, uh, NASA was looking around the universe with a Hubble Space Telescope. And they found a spot in the sky where they couldn't see anything. That was the first. And so they determined to focus on that spot of the sky for 10 days <clears throat> to draw in as much possible light as they could because of their curiosity. Maybe they'll see the, 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 the end of the universe. You know, what, what will they see? They've never had a place where there weren't gas clouds, there weren't stars, there wasn't something out there. Here was a spot where they couldn't see anything. And what was also interesting is the spot of sky they were looking at, they said it was like taking a, one grain of sand and holding it up at arm's length. It was up near the Big Dipper. So how big would a size of sky be? Size of a grain of sand held this far away. And so for 10 days, they, if you will, held the shutter open to get just the faintest, faintest, faintest light that might be impressed upon the lens. And when they developed the film, so to speak, they found 1,500 galaxies. Each of those specks of light is a galaxy, each of which is comprised of billions of stars. Billions. And each one of the billions, perhaps hundreds or thousands of light years from the next one. Grain of sand held at arm's length. Is there anything up there? How about 1,500 galaxies? And we've already talked about how long it can take you hundreds of light years 
to go from one side of one little smudge of light to the other side? I mean, more than that, I mean, it's just taking almost an eternity to go from one side of the smudge to the other side of the smudge. And if you think that's a long way, how far is it from one smudge way over to the next smudge? And there's 1,500 in a little speck of sky. What if God were just as big as a speck of sky like this? And you wanted to see it all. How long would it take? Well, we know God is not just as big as that. God inhabits the entire universe. The entire universe. And that's why you read in Revelation of these creatures that have the closest proximity to God himself. Nothing else between them and God. And it says that for eternity, since eternity passed, since they were created, all they have done is cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is who is to come. And then, when they finish saying that, then what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. Day and night without ceasing. How can they do that? Because God is so immense and so indescribably beautiful that everywhere they look, it takes their breath away. Holy, holy, holy. And then they look here. Holy, holy, holy to a God who fills the universe. Everywhere they look takes their breath away. And there's an infinite view of an infinite God. You never see all there is and all that you see takes your breath away. And if you could come up to them and, and get their attention which I'm sure you could not what would distract them from God? You could shoot a pistol off in their ear and they probably wouldn't even notice. But if you could come up to them and say, uh, excuse me Mr. Strangel, I'm sorry to interrupt, I know you're very busy and it's very important here but doesn't this get a little boring here? I mean, after maybe a couple of hundred years, okay, but day and night without ceasing, forever, holy, 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 doesn't that get a little boring? Sooner or later, they would look at you if they would, you could get their attention and astonishment and say, boring, can't you see? Look, look, are you crazy? Can't you see? Because what they see is so stupefying and so captivating. They can hardly pry their eyes away, but when they do, what they see there takes their breath away again. <gasps> holy, holy, holy. And because God is infinite, 
they can do that day and night without ceasing forever. You want to see that? That's why God is worth seeking. That's why you want to rest from your work and seek your God because God is worth seeking. There is nothing like him and all other things put together are nothing in comparison to having and knowing this God. And all you have to do is give up your righteousness. That is good news. So why should you rest from your work, seek God in Christ, no more than because of who God is? Second, because of the consequences if we don't. You miss God. And for all eternity, the agony gnaws at your heart of what you could have had. And you gave it up. You miss it. And you suffer eternal agony because you did not rest from your work and seek your God. Some of the most miserable people in the world are those trying to work their way to God. I was told, in fact, as a week ago tonight, by someone connected with their seminary, they had visited with someone who said, oh, I know I'm going to heaven. How do you know? I've given a lot of money to the church. Well, how do they know they haven't come like a dollar short? And for all eternity, I thought, just one dollar more. But then they give a dollar more, and then they think, well, how do you know you're not still a dollar short? Where are you told what the standard is? How do you know when you've made it? You think you're at the top rung of the ladder to find only there's one more. And forever there's one more. Third reason to rest from your work and seek your God is because of benefits if we do. You get God and every promise of his. So that's why we should do it. How do we break the fourth commandment today? If the fourth commandment is not about just Sabbath keeping, but how, how then do we break it today? Well, by trying, first of all, by trying to work our way to heaven and earn God's acceptance. Do you realize that the by trying to be good enough to get to heaven, you're actually breaking the greatest of all commandments. People who struggle to get to heaven, they're trying to work their way there when the whole point is to rest from your works and rest by faith in the works of Jesus, the only one whose works impress God. In the airports today is on those moving, you know, those people movers. And... You know, conveyor belt going this way to help you walk faster. And invariably, there's, there's a kid on the other side, you know, supposed to go in this way. But he's facing the same way I am. And even though he and I are both walking the same direction, he's actually going backward. That's the way it is with a lot of people who think they are facing toward God and working their way toward God. But in fact, no matter how hard they work, they're only getting farther away. Ephesians 2.9 says we get to God not as a result of works, Titus 3, 5 says we get to him not on the basis of deeds we have done. And perhaps the single most misunderstood thing in the world about the Bible is 
that people mistakenly think that it teaches if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and don't worry they will you go to heaven people just seem to naturally believe that it's the most misunderstood thing in the world about the Bible God has said the way you enter is to give up relying on your good works as a means of righteousness you cannot impress God enough for him to throw open the door of heaven only Jesus did that so we break the fourth commandment when we're trying to work our way to heaven earn God's assurance we break it by not setting aside time exclusively for the worship of God not everything in the fourth commandment speaks of things that were temporary and symbolic and one of the abiding principles here is that we are to worship our Creator and set aside time exclusively for that purpose so is worship time flexible or inflexible for you will you sacrifice worship if something you find enjoyable comes along if guests come to visit will you miss worship for weather you wouldn't miss work for and third we break this commandment by not recognizing the God-given principle of work and rest it's another one of the abiding principles of the fourth commandment this divinely established rhythm between work and rest if you experience burnout or get close to doing that you've broken God's law fatigue is one thing that's natural that's an intended result of good hard work burnout from work without rest is something else well, that's how we break it quickly how do we keep the fourth commandment today well it's the flip side of what I just said we keep it by resting from trying to work for salvation and resting in Christ's work if the Bible said to be right with God you had to work for 10 years at no pay to get it or working in some grueling physical job or working with AIDS patients or lepers for 10 years people would be lined up for it but when salvation is offered freely by resting in the work someone else has done they don't want that thank you very much but Jesus said of himself I am the way the truth the life if that weren't plain enough he went on to say and no one regardless of how much money they give or how hard they work no one comes to the father but through me he said that's how we keep the fourth commandment we keep it by setting aside time exclusively for the worship of God we'll talk about that some more in the next hour and by recognizing the God-given principle of work and rest God wants you to work with excellence but he wants you to rest with excellence too well let me close the session with this first of all whose work are you trusting in that's a direct question I need to ask everyone whose work are you trusting in if I ask you individually in fact I, let me just ask you and you formulate your answer in your mind how would you say what would you say to me if I said do you believe you're going to heaven I think most of you would say yes I, I do and if I said why in your mind formulate the beginning of your answer why do you think you're going to heaven now, if the answer you just formulated in your mind began with because I beware, 
even if you were about to say, because I have repented and believed in Christ. There's a way of talking about repentance and faith in Christ that's actually making it a work. If I do this, God will give me this. If I repent and believe, he will give me salvation. And we end up making repentance and faith a good work that earns salvation. Now, you must believe and you must repent. There is no salvation apart from it. But a better way of thinking of that is because God saved me through Jesus. Why are you going to heaven? Is your emphasis, does it begin with because I or because God? Whose work are you trusting in? Do you keep a regular time exclusively for the worship of God? And does your work call for rest and your rest call for work? If you can work all the time, you aren't working hard enough. When you work as hard as you're supposed to, it calls for rest. And if you think you could rest all the time, you're not resting right. When you rest right, it calls you back to do what God wants you to do with your life. You're ready to come back. Now, I'm not, you know, you can be in the wrong job and those, I understand all that. But the general rule of scripture is when you're working hard enough, it call, you have to rest. And when you're resting right, it recharges you to go back to do God's will for your life. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do we do that? Rest from your work and seek your God. The Jews heard it one way. Now we hear it another. Now we're going to take a break. Now we'll have the pastor tell us what to do there and describe that in just a moment. The next session is okay. If Sunday is different, let's, let's hear about that. And what are we to do? Whenever we talk about the Sabbath of the Lord's Day, you know what the response of most people tends to be? Look, look, buddy, just, just cut to the chase and tell us what we can do and can't do, okay? Do you see what a terrible question that is now? What a terrible legalistic question that is? Totally misunderstands the idea that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. But we do have this New Testament term called the Lord's Day. We're going to see what does that mean and then what, how do we apply that. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about very, very practical stuff in the next session. Pastor.